Hello. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, I guess it's time for us to get started. Um, in case you didn't realize, this is the last Sunday of this quarter, so something new will be in here next Sunday. I'm not for sure exactly what, <laughs> uh, but this will be the last uh, last Sunday of this quarter. So hope y'all are having a had a good last week. We're starting a new one, aren't we, today? If you're lucky, you get tomorrow off if you're working, so I'm happy about that myself. Before we get into chapter 20, I wanted to revisit something that was asked last week. I don't remember who asked the question, but they wanted to talk about the harmful spirit that was brought to Saul by God. Uh, it appeared once in chapter 16 when I was teaching, and then last week in chapter 19 when Daryl was teaching. But uh, I had some additional thoughts on that that I just kind of wanted to touch base with before we moved on. Um, my thoughts, not <laughs> you know, Robert chapter 1, verse 1, so take it for what you want. Uh, but just some more I had thoughts on about it I thought we'd do before we get into chapter 20 if you'll indulge me on that. So like I said in 1 Samuel 16:14 and 1 Samuel 19:9 it talks about uh, a harmful spirit in the ESV or a distressing spirit in the New King James that was brought upon Saul by God. Which sounds, you know, a little different for us to to think about. But I want to say that uh, I actually do believe that it was something that was either allowed by God or brought to him by God. Uh, it was something that was almost immediately seen by those around him. Uh, in chapter 16, uh, they're even saying a harmful spirit has been, you know, from God is on you. And that's when they suggest to have music played to try to soothe him and bring him out of that. And that's when David appears in, in Saul's life. Uh, so there's one way God may have used it to, just to get David into this uh, picture here. Um, but part of why we have a problem with that is I think we think that somehow it's taken away Saul's free will or, or something like that. But if you read closer with it, it it's temporary. This isn't something that once it was on him, from there until he dies, he's had this harmful spirit on him. If you read it, it, it kind of comes and goes here. If, you, if it didn't, he wouldn't have had to do it a second time in chapter 19 if it was still with him. Uh, I think the big key is that the Holy Spirit that uh, God had put upon Saul when he started all this had left him at this point because Saul had been so rebellious, actually, and, and kicking against God's will. Saul's already to a point at this point where he's willfully going against God. He, he's not trying to fulfill God's will at this point. He's more worried about what he wants at this point. Um, God sets Saul up from the very beginning to succeed. Uh, he's not trying to make him fail, uh, although we know God can know whatever he wants to know, and, and he does know this is, probably, this is what's going to happen. But he doesn't set Saul up to fail and he's not trying to make him fail with this either. Now, if you remember at the beginning, you know he, the Holy Spirit rushes upon Saul, and and he starts out so well uh, when he's trying to follow God's will. 
but Saul goes against what God wants. So Saul's already, you know, not where God needs him to be. And, uh, you know, God's going to use him to fulfill his will one way or the other. You know, Saul could have been what God wanted from beginning to end. He did have choice. He made his choices. Um, this harmful spirit at this time or at the next time doesn't take away, in my opinion, his free will. Uh, he had plenty of time to choose before and after this spirit. He made his choices. Uh, and, and God's going to use him. He will use him. He's going to use him differently than Saul would have liked. But, but it's almost a cautionary lesson for us not to let our hearts drift too far away from God. If he needs to use you for something, he's going to. Um, you, know, you can fulfill his will and, and gladly try to do what he wants, or you can kick against it and he'll use you use you in another way. Um, but this is kind of a temporary thing. He did have free spirit. Um, I don't believe this to be a salvation issue either. I think that's where we really worry about free will because we want to think that we have the ability to accept God and, and be forgiven by God even you know up until our last breath, and I believe we do. Uh, I don't, we don't know Saul's eternity. We don't know. We know his choices his throne was taken from him. His dynasty was taken from him. And even his life on this earth was taken from him, even though he ends it himself. Uh, but we don't know Saul's eternity. We don't know whether he's, you know, heaven or hell. We don't know that. We don't know that. And it doesn't suggest here that he's one way or the other. I don't believe. Uh, so we just, I, I don't know, I guess we need to kind of separate, in my opinion, the free will part of this, because I, I, I don't really think it took away Saul's free will uh, to serve God. He chose not to quite a bit. Um, God does use people throughout history. Um, there's a, a few passages here. It's not the same thing as having a spirit put on you, but like Job 16, verse 11, says God gives, up to, uh, gives me up to the ungodly and casts me into the hands of the wicked. Uh, and sorry if I'm just taking these out of context, I don't mean to, but then in Romans 1, there's three different places where the words, you know, suggest, 24, therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Uh, 26, for this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Uh, 28, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, gave them up, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Um, Acts 7. And I know these are a little different, but it's just to, to show that God, uh, there's a point you can reach with God where he'll use you in a different way or allow you to continue to wallow in your mistakes. I said wallow. I know that's a good word. My grandmother taught me that word. <laughs> so, Acts 7.42, But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, says it is written in the book of prophets. They were worshiping the sun, the moon, the stars. Um, so there, there is a point to where God will let you just continue to make, make your mistakes and drift farther away from him. He doesn't really leave you... Um, and then just the underlying thing, and this is what I come back to personally whenever somebody thinks they're being treated unfairly by God. Romans 9, 21 says, 
has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? God's the creator. We're the creation. Are we really going to tell him he's doing things wrong? Are we really going to tell him he's not fair to us? Um, I don't really know how you do that. But those are just some additional thoughts I had about that. Um, you may totally disagree with all of them, and that's okay. But uh, I just felt like there needed to be a little more said on that, because I know I didn't say a whole lot when we were in Chapter 16 about it. And uh, just just felt like there needed to be a little more talk about that, since it is a little confusing, <laughs> honestly. So anybody want to say anything about that before I go on to Chapter 20? I just felt like we need to touch on it. But Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't come across that in anything, but that, that was interesting. Um, so, I don't know, a little, <laughs> a little confusing there. All right, we are going to get into chapter 20 now, and I'm going to turn this off now. I just didn't want to have to flip through that many verses through the pages that quickly, because I figured it might take a second. So, Chapter 20, this is one of those stories that I remember from childhood. It just left an impression on me with Jonathan and David and the the arrows that are being shot as a signal. Um, I think it's very interesting. All right, we'll start right there in verse 1, chapter 20. Then David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say... I will do for you. So David's convinced Saul's intending to kill him. He's just a step between him and death. Uh, And not just a moment of insanity, you know, where he threw the spear against the wall trying to pin David to it, but actually plotting his death. David's convinced he's plotting to kill him. Jonathan doesn't believe it. Uh, maybe he's thinking Saul's still going to honor the oath he made back in chapter 19 where you know David base, or Jonathan talks some sense into Saul for a moment and he has an oath that he wouldn't do it. Uh, so maybe Jonathan's wanting to believe the best of his dad here and think that he, he meant that and he's going to live up to it. He may just not want to think his father would be capable of this. Um, but that pact, that covenant between Jonathan and David, their friendship between God... You know, in the in, in sight of God, he listens to David, even though he doesn't believe this. He does listen to David and agrees to do whatever he asks. So that that covenant of friendship, that deep bond that they have, is coming through, even over his father. Uh, verse five. David said to Jonathan, "Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at the table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening." If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. 
the new moon. This is this is just marking the beginning of the month in the lunar calendar. Uh, but they celebrated it with a sacrificial meal. It was more of a religious festival, and it could last two or three days. Uh, had something to do with the moon itself and how quickly it, the crescent moon showed. Uh, but it was a religious festival. They even rested from work. Uh, according to the scripture here, David's family also had a yearly sacrifice that coincided with, with this new moon festival. That's his excuse if he's not there. Uh, kind of a family reunion of sorts set around this festival. Did David actually go? Is this just a cover story? It doesn't say. <laughs> um and we'll find you find later if you continue reading, David sometimes said some things that weren't 100% true. Uh, don't know how to reconcile that, but so I, I'm going to think maybe his family did have this, you know, that he didn't just make that up because that could have been checked, I guess. But did he actually go, or was he just hiding out? I don't know. It doesn't tell us that exactly. Uh, so he could just be setting up a nice cover story for Jonathan to to explain why David wasn't in the presence of the king during this festival. So, not sure. Verse 7. If he says good, it will be well with your servant, but if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. He's reminding him that again. But if there's guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, Far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, Come, let us go out into the field. So they both went out into the field. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, or the third day, remember this festival could go one, two, three days, Um, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan, and more also if I do not disclose it to you, and send you away that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. If I am still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as his, he loved his own soul. So what is Jonathan really saying here? It seems like he's acknowledging that David's going to be king. He didn't come right out and say it, but the phrasing and the things he said show that he he knows David's you know going to be chosen by God to be to be king. Uh, Jonathan could have been bitter about this, you know. He he appears to be the rightful successor to the throne when Saul's not king. Uh, he's a he's a warrior. The people love him. He's you know, the son, even though Saul's the first king, they really haven't set up this airship like other countries with their kings, but that would have been what they would have thought. So Jonathan could have been bitter about this, but he's not. He's not. Um, instead, he reminds David of their covenant, and he asks that if he's still alive when, when David 
is in charge, we'll say, becomes king, that he won't, won't kill him and that his family won't be cut off. Uh, new kings, that would have been the practice in this time. You know, you get rid of any kind of possible claim to the throne from the previous uh, family that, that held, held the, the throne. So Jonathan's making him promise that uh, he won't do that. He won't wipe out his family. Uh, and we know later in Scripture that David does show Jonathan's family kindness. In fact, Hiram just a few weeks ago had a sermon about it. Does anybody remember that name? It's a fun name to say. <laughs> Mephibosheth. That's, that's uh, Jonathan's son, the one who's lame in both his feet and he can't care for himself. And David brings him in and treats him like he's his own, own family. He sits at the king's table. Uh, all Saul's land is restored to him, his family. So we know that David, later on, when he is king, he does this very thing that Jonathan asked him to do, to not cut his family off, and he, he even shows kindness to him beyond what he really had to do. And it's because of this love for Jonathan, this deep friendship that they had. All right, verse 18. Then Jonathan said to him, Tomorrow is the new moon. And you will be missed because your seat will be empty. On the third day, go down quickly to the place where you hid yourself when the matter was in hand and remain beside the stone heap. The stone heap, it's also translated stone easel. Uh, we don't know where this is, don't know the location, but it would have been apparently a well-known landmark in this time, in this situation. Uh, I don't really know where it is as of today. Verse 20. And I will shoot three arrows to the side of it, as though I shot at a mark. And behold, I will send the young man, saying, Go find the arrows. If I say to the young man, Look, the arrows are on the side of you, on this side of you. Take them. Then you are to come for, as the Lord lives, it is safe for you, and there is no danger. But if I say to the youth, Look, the arrows are beyond you, then go, for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter of which you and I have spoken, behold, the Lord is between you and me forever. So David hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times, on the seat by the wall. Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. And, and it would be noticed. I mean, David's a pretty big... Uh, person in the king's court at this point. Uh, Abner that's here, that's uh, Saul's cousin and he's the commander of his army. So Abner's probably feeling a little threatened by David too. Uh, so verse 26 we'll pick up there. Yet Saul did not say anything that day for he thought something has happened to him. He is not clean. Surely he is not clean. So that sounds a little strange, doesn't it? Uh, he, he's assuming David is ritually unclean. Remember, this is a festival. This is something that they have to uh, adhere to the, the practices of being ritually clean to participate in this meal because it's a, it's a sacrificial meal. It's, it's not just getting together and, and eating. Uh, if you look at, I'm just going to let you write these down if you want to, but I'm not going to read them. Uh, Leviticus 7, 20, and 21. And Leviticus 15:16. These kind of talk more about the ritually unclean. What would make you unclean to participate in the festivals? 
Um, so Saul's just going, okay, he's, he's just unclean. He can't come and participate this today. Um, so we'll go on 27 here. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty. And Saul said to Jonathan, his son, Why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, Let me go, for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. For this reason, he has not come to the king's table. So Saul's okay the first day. He can kind of explain away why David wouldn't be there. But on the second day, because there would have been time to become clean in 24 hours, enough to be at this, uh, this festival. So he's suspicious on the second day because he should have already been able to be clean. So he's, he's thinking something's up at this point. And then Jonathan goes ahead and tells him the story or excuse, depending on which way it is, that uh, David had, had told him to say should it be you know, brought up that David's not there. All right, verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. So Saul's not even trying to hide it at this point. <laughs> uh, this this uh, insult here is as bad as it kind of sounds, even though it's not as bad as you might think when you read that, when he says, son of a, a uh, perverse, rebellious woman. In he- Hebrew, this is a very strong insult. Um, you know, and what is he thinking about here? He's thinking about his own dynasty. He's thinking about Jonathan uh, basically just giving up the heirship to the throne. He's trying to appeal to Jonathan there too. He's like, do you not see what you're doing? You've chosen David over the throne. You're giving up what you could have had for David. And, uh, that, and that is pretty much what he's doing. Uh, but we already know Jonathan's come to terms with this earlier in the chapter You know, with the, the conversation. He's basically already said he knows this is the way it's going to be, and he's good with it. And why would he be good with it? Because he's following God. He's he's not thinking like his father in a more worldly way. He's, he knows that God's with um, And if this is what God wants, then that's what it's going to be. Uh, Jonathan's actually much more a follower of God than, than Saul, it appears. Um but Saul's not even trying to hide what he's trying to do. You know, there's been some deception up to this point, you know, giving him one of his daughters and she'd be a snare to him. And, oh, if you want to marry her, then you have to go bring me back a hundred foreskins of Philistines, thinking the Philistines would kill David for him. He's not even hiding it now. He just basically is yelling at Jonathan and saying, bring him to me. He's going to die. He's had enough. This is it. It's time to, to end this in his mind. He wants David dead so he can circumvent God's will and the judgment against Saul. Because if you go back, you know, Samuel told Saul a long time ago, the throne's being taken from you. Someone else is going to replace you. Um, and he knows that Samuel's words are from God. Um, he thinks he can circumvent this and do an end around God somehow. I'll kill him, and then God's plans are different than what I've been told. Um, 
He hasn't learned much about what, when God wants something, it's going to happen. So he's angry that his son won't be king if David lives. Uh, did I get to the next verse yet? No, let me, uh, let me read on before I say that. Verse 32, Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he put, be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So Saul was so angry, (laughs) and he's angry that his son's not going to carry on his legacy if David lives. So what does he do? In his anger, he hurls his spirit at his own son to try to kill him. He's not thinking straight here. If his son's dead, he's surely not going to be king. You know, he's mad that that's not going to happen, so here, I'll throw a spear at him. And, you know, he's he's just consumed with rage and jealousy and anger at this point. I said, Jonathan can't even defend his father at this point. It's like all the realization just washes over him here. It's like, it's exactly how David said it is. And he also knows that he's going to have to part with David. All right, let's finish up reading this uh, chapter here. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. So this is a little new wrinkle in the plan here. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another. David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So the sign's been given. The old boy doesn't really realize he's participated in this, but... uh, David is being told by Jonathan, you need to get out of here, and you need to get out of here now. And uh, David, because they sent the little boy to the city, and that wasn't part of the original plan, they're going to get to say their goodbyes. And David bows more than once. He's showing his respect, his acknowledgement of Jonathan's position. Uh, They both weep, which... You know, weeping is a lot more than just some tears shed. This is deep sobbing. This is very emotional. And who weeps more? Um, Jonathan reminds them of their covenant before God of loyalty and friendship. You know, these are two very valiant warriors. These are tough men. These are men who've slain the enemy over and over. But they have tender hearts that are capable of some deep, love here they would never see each other again and David would be an outcast of the royal court until Saul dies 
It's a huge moment here. They would never see each other again. I don't know. I know we've all had people who have died that we've said goodbye to before they die, but I don't know if I've ever had to say goodbye to someone I cared that much about knowing I'd never see them again, other than, you know, health reason or something like that. But this is a deep, a deep friendship here that goes deeper than just a couple of good friends. They're more like, uh, it says their souls are knit together. So uh, it says experience anything quite like, like that. Maybe you have. Uh, I got really emotional reading this for some reason, so I don't know. Maybe I have something I need to resolve. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's a very sad, uh, sad moment. Any thoughts or comments on any of this so far? I think that's the last we're going to go detailed into a chapter, but just quickly, since we're not going to make it to the end <laughs> of First Samuel, there are some interesting things that happen that you can read uh, further on your own. Uh, the next chapter is David and the Holy Bread, where he eats bread that really wasn't intended for him, but uh, they have nothing else to eat, and Somehow they're allowed to eat this. There, there's some things that happen between here and the end of this chapter that you go, hmm, okay. Uh, uh, David spares Saul's life. There's two different instances. Uh, if you go into chapter 24 is one of them. And chapter 26, on two different occasions, uh, Saul is very vulnerable. And David could have ended his life at any moment. And on this last time, he even takes a piece of his robe to show him after Saul was awakened to show your life was in my hands. God gave you to me. I could have ended you right here, but I didn't. Why are you treating me like you're doing? Saul just will not relent, even though he seems in one of those instances to be sorry about it. He still will not give up going after after David. Uh a real quick mention about Samuel. Uh, see, let me see which chapter that. Oh, verse uh, chapter 25 in verse one. There, there's just one little verse. Samuel, this huge figure who's had so much influence over everything that God's used him so much. It just says, "Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him in the house of Ramah." I guess I would have thought there'd been more than a verse about Samuel's death, but that—that's what is mentioned. Uh, but then later, in chapter 28, I almost thought about going into detail on this chapter, but I decided against it. Um, Saul seeks out the help of what they called a medium, someone who uh, claimed to be able to contact spirits from the dead. Because Samuel's gone, and he's going into a big battle, and he needs some help. <laughs> and so he actually seeks out a medium, uh, which is interesting because he's actually run out people who did this before, but now he's using one uh, to try to bring up the spirit of Samuel so Samuel can help him one more time. Uh, that chapter is very interesting if you'd like to read that on your own time there. Um, it, I can't really explain a lot of it, but uh, it works. Uh, Samuel's spirit is brought up, and 
If you read later in First Chronicles when it talks about Saul's death, it says one of the reasons he had to die was for what happened in this chapter. It actually secondarily mentions that he sought out a medium, which was forbidden against in the law. Um, so I don't know if that meant at one time people could actually do this, and that's why it was forbidden, because you were dabbling in things you should not have been, or if it was just because you were not seeking God and you were seeking something else. I cannot cannot say for sure on that. All we know is in verse in chapter 28, it does happen this time. And it scares the woman that it happens to. So I don't know if it just usually didn't <laughs> work. And she's like, oh, no. <laughs> or if it was just what was different about this situation and that it was Samuel. Um, but it is, is something that was forbidden. And then you go on to chapter the last chapter in 1 Samuel. And I will read this one. It's not very long. Uh, this is where Saul dies. Chapter 31 and verse, verse 1. It's a, a tragic ending to a tragic character. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. And the Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, And he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his armor bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised things, I guess, uh, come and thrust me through and mistreat me. So he's afraid that they're going to come and torture him and do bad things and prolong his death, and he doesn't want that. So he's asking his his armor bearer to kill him. Uh, But his armor bearer says he would not. He would not do it, for he feared greatly. He should. Uh, Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. I guess he just kind of leaned into it so it would try to run him through. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together which I believe he was foretold this would happen, and it did. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they abandoned their cities and fled, and the Philistines came and lived in them. The next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they're going to scavenge here, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Geboa. So they cut off his head, and stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. So it's good news to them. Kind of interesting, his head gets cut off, which is kind of paralleled to what happened to Goliath, uh, the one he was afraid to fight that David fought in the name of God. Uh, So there's some symmetry there. they put his armor in the temple of Ashtaroth. It's a you know, temple with idol worship, so they've got his armor there. If you remember, David took Goliath's armor too, so that, that must have been a, a trophy kind of thing. And they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night 
and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. And they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. So there were some people willing to risk their lives here just to uh, take the body off the wall, this, this disgrace and dishonor of the king of Israel once God is anointed. And then uh, they burn the bodies. So that was the tragic end to Saul. Could have turned out differently, but God knew all along this is how it would be. Uh, he knew David would wind up being the king, the line that Jesus comes through. Uh, in the first chapter of Second Samuel, David finds out that Saul and Jonathan and all of them are dead, and he's he's grieved deeply. Um, I don't guess I'll read that, but there's an Amalekite who shows up and takes credit for having come across Saul in the throes of death and then basically finishing it off. And he takes uh, Saul's crown and some jewelry and things and presents them to David like as a gift. And David's like, how do you know they're dead? And then he tells him that he basically finished him off. And David kills this person for having raised his hand against the anointing. Uh, there's a little weirdness here about the story because it doesn't jive with the one we just read a little bit. Uh, we did a little, Stacy and I did a little talking on that and studying on that. And uh, most of the commentaries I read said they think the Amalekite was lying, that he came across his body before the Philistines and thought this would be a good way in with the new, going to be the new king gift. Didn't realize he'd wind up losing his life over it from what he said. Um, I don't know why they think that other than that really kind of fits. Um, but even if that's not the case, you know, it could very well be that Saul was still, you know, not quite dead. The armor bearer might have seen him. He could have just passed out from the initial agony of it and, and then the armor bearer thought that, but then somehow Saul wasn't quite dead, and this man could have could have come upon him uh, and finished the job. I don't really know. Um, I don't really see these as discrepancies, as some will try to say, um, because I think you can make that story work, like I just said. Or it could very well be, as most of the commentaries say, they think this Amalekite found him dead and made up a story that cost him his life, which, you know... That didn't work out too good for him. But I, th I think that's where we'll, we'll end that. Um, any comments or anything about any of Saul or anything we've talked about today? Uh, we've still got about five minutes. If not, I've got a little funny thing I thought I'd read. Have anything? <laughs> Other than that when I started... Uh, when I realized I was going to be helping teach this quarter, I was going through all these books I have and things, and I have some really old ones that uh, a great uncle of mine named James Canada, I doubt any of y'all would have known him. He would have been in Franklin, Kentucky for quite a while. He's been dead for quite a while. Very godly man, very simple man, very humble man. Uh, in one of the old books that were his that I got when he passed, this just fell out of it, and I, he must have thought it was funny. And you can tell it was typed on a typewriter, and that's how old it is. It's a copy of it, but it's not something that was emailed to anybody or anything like that. But 
I just thought it was funny, and it brings him to my mind while I read it. So I'll just close this quarter out reading this silly little funny thing, if you'll indulge me. Uh, It's called Just a Little Mixed Up. Just a line to say I'm living, that I'm not among the dead. I'm just getting more forgetful and more mixed up in the head. One thing I can't remember is when I stand at the foot of the stair, was I going up for something? Or did I just come down from there? I stand before the refrigerator, my poor mind filled with doubt. Have I just put the food away? Or have I come to take it out? Then snug in robe and nightgown with curlers on my head, was I going to retire or just getting out of bed? So if it's my turn to write you, there's no need of getting sore. I probably think that I have written and I don't have to want to be a bore. (laughs) I'm going out to mail this letter for the mailman's almost here. I look forward to your answer for now. Goodbye, my dear. P.S. There I stood beside the mailbox with a face so very red. Instead of mailing you my letter, I had opened it instead. (laughs) I just thought that was funny, but... I guess that's really just the first bell. Uh, so I, I am through. Uh, we've got five minutes. If there's something anybody wants to bring up or raise a point or just have a comment, now's a good time. Otherwise, we're going to be dismissed five minutes early. So, All right. Well, thank you all for being a good, uh, good class these last three months. So we'll have somebody new next week. So.